0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: So this really normal-looking businessman guy sits down at a seat in an airplane in the uh, early 1970s, orders a scotch and soda, seems very normal, until he grabs the attention of one of the flight attendants. That's a story you're going to hear about today from a different podcast. If you listen to this podcast, you love history, we get into a lot of topics, but there's a lot of topics we don't have time to get into. And so I'm introducing to you a podcast that I like, History Daily, and it's hosted by Lindsey Graham. You know, um, probably American History Tellers, very popular podcast, American Scandal, History Daily is just that a daily podcast. Every day, he's going to take you back in time to explore a momentous event that has happened on this day in history. Whether it's to remember the tragedy of December 7th, 1941, the day that will live in infamy. Or to celebrate that 20th day in July 1969 when mankind reached the moon. History Daily is there to tell you the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world One day at a time. So if you're stuck in traffic, you're bored at work, wherever you are, listen to History Daily. Remind yourself that something incredible happened to make this day historic. It's a co-production from award-winning podcasters Airship and Noiser. Now, we have a real treat because History Daily's episodes are on the smaller side compared to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. So we're going to feature two of them. The first one is about D.B. Cooper. And I'm really excited about this because I've been trying to find a way to get the D.B. Cooper story into My History Can Beat Up Your Politics for an episode and haven't been able to do it. It is that mysterious hijacker from the 70s. You may only know him by the sketch that was made of him with the sunglasses, the mystery that still has not been solved. And Lindsay is going to talk about that a bit. Then we're going to follow it up with an episode on a totally different topic about the War of 1812 and particularly the signing of the Treaty of Ghent that ended the war between the U.S. and Britain. So sign up for History Daily, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get podcasts from. Sign up for History Daily today.
2: It's November 24th, 1971. A passenger plane flies south over Washington State. Outside, a storm rages. Hailstones pelt the cockpit window. Thunderclaps make the aircraft shudder and lurch. Lightning flashes provide fleeting glimpses of the wilderness below. A churning river, jagged mountaintops, and unending stretches of pine forest. Conditions like these can bring planes like this down, so the pilots clench their jaws and grapple with the throttle. This storm is biblical, they think as their eyes anxiously flip between the controls and the altitude indicator. They're flying dangerously low, 10,000 feet, just below the clouds. But those are their instructions, and they don't dare to find them. Earlier that day, during a routine flight from Portland to Seattle, these pilots received word from one of the stewardesses that their plane was being hijacked. The hijacker had a bomb, they said, and was demanding $200,000 in cash. Strangely, four parachutes. The hijacker forced the pilots to land in Seattle. After securing the ransom, he released the passengers but forced the pilots to remain on board along with an engineer and one stewardess. The hijacker ordered the pilots to take off again and fly the plane to Mexico City, no higher than 10,000 feet. The man had a bomb, they were told. The pilots had no choice but to oblige. But now, struggling through this tempest, they fear they may not even make it out of Washington. Suddenly, the door of the cockpit flies open. It's Tina Mucklow, the stewardess. She's been in the cabin with the hijacker. The pilots ask her what's going on, and she indicates he's going to jump. Meanwhile, at the very back of the cabin, this hijacker stands at an open door, peering into the dark abyss below. A look of fear briefly passes over his face as he contemplates the freezing vortex of wind and rain. He takes a final drag of his cigarette to steady his nerves. Then he picks up the briefcases full of cash, tightens the strap of the parachute around his shoulders, and jumps. Before he hits the ground, news of the hijacking will already be a national story, and the hijacker, known only as D.B. Cooper, will become an urban legend. To find him, the FBI will launch the longest and most exhaustive investigation in its history, but to no avail. DB Cooper, whoever he is, will vanish. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is November 24th, the mystery of D.B. Cooper. It's November 24th, 1971, several hours before D.B. Cooper jumps out of the hijacked plane. on board a Northwest Orient Airlines flight from Portland to Seattle... 22-year-old stewardess Tina Mucklow prays for a break in the weather. Outside, dark storm clouds rumble and flash with lightning. Violent squalls hammer against the windows. The flight's already been delayed by 30 minutes, the entire flight time of this short puddle jump to Seattle. The passengers are restless. It's these tedious domestic flights that make Mucklow question her decision to become a stewardess in the first place. Maybe she should have followed her mother into nursing, she thinks as she chews her fingernails. If she were a nurse, she wouldn't have to hide her wedding ring. She wouldn't be fired for the crime of being pregnant, or for turning 30, as the terms of her employment contract stipulate. Commercial aviation's boom years, the jet age of the 50s and 60s, have reached a giddy fever pitch by 1971. Air travel used to be the privilege of the wealthy few, but by the 70s, falling fares means anyone can take to the skies. Flying has never been so accessible or so straightforward. All you have to do is show up. You don't even need a valid ID. To Tina Mucklow, a girl from rural Pennsylvania, the life of an air stewardess seemed glamorous and exciting. She'd signed up in the late 60s, when acceptance rates for stewardess jobs were around 3%, more competitive than Yale University. But the reality of the lifestyle is distinctly unglamorous. There's some exotic foreign travel, but the hours are long and the wages are low. Making matters worse, the job is becoming increasingly dangerous. Between 1968 and 1972, there were more than 130 reported incidents of a brand new type of crime in America, airplane hijacking, or as it came to be known, skyjacking. The cause of the epidemic was the trade and travel ban between the US and communist Cuba. The skyjackers were primarily Cuban nationals wishing to return home. Such incidents became a common occurrence and were lightheartedly dubbed, take me to Cuba hijackings. But eventually, these hijackings inspired other, more hardened criminals to get in on the act. Most hijackings followed the same pattern. The skyjackers would threaten to detonate a bomb unless the airline agreed to pay their ransom. And the airlines obliged, preferring to pay up quietly, rather than risk the airplane, the passengers, and the press. Additionally, they were often reluctant to put safety measures in place, believing that too much security at the airport would deter passengers from flying. Thankfully, Tina Mucklow has not been the victim of a hijacker. But as her mother keeps reminding her, it's only a matter of time. Finally, the skies let up a bit, and the captain gives an all-clear for takeoff. Mucklow performs her final safety checks of the cabin, then heads to her seat at the rear of the plane. Just as she's buckling in, she notices something strange. Her fellow stewardess, Florence, sits next to a passenger, a man wearing a dark suit and sunglasses. Mucklow is puzzled that Florence is sitting down. That's against the rules. But as she approaches to check if everything's all right, she sees Florence discreetly motion for her to pick up a note that's lying on the floor. Mucklow does, and reads it. Miss, I have a bomb in my briefcase. I want you to sit by me. You're being hijacked. Somewhere deep in the bowels of the aircraft, A high-pitched whine turns into a guttural roar. And seconds later, the plane is airborne, soaring up into the stormy night sky. Her heart pounding, Mucklow glances over at the briefcase on the man's lap. She can almost picture the bomb inside, like something from the movies. A tangle of wires, a battery, six red cylinders, sticks of dynamite. But the bomb might be a fake, just like the mysterious man's identity. He boarded the plane under a false name, Dan Cooper, But due to a subsequent newspaper misprint, he will come to be known by a different name, D.B. Cooper. And he has no intention of blowing up the plane. He wants money. But Tina Mucklow doesn't know that. Her eyes brim with tears. Then, just as she starts to shake uncontrollably, she hears the hijacker's voice calling her. She turns. He's looking directly at her, a lit cigarette smoldering in one hand. He seems quite unlike a hardened criminal. He seems pleasant soft-spoken, polite. There's nothing to worry about, he tells Mucklow, but Mucklow doesn't believe him. As the plane hurls through the sky, she hears her mother's words in her head, and she begins to wonder if this might be the last trip she will ever make. It's November 24, 1971. On board the flight to Seattle, Cooper tries to put Mucklow and the other flight attendant at ease. He urges them not to alert the passengers to the danger. As long as everyone remains calm, he assures them, no one will be hurt. Cooper is courteous and sympathetic. He pays for his drinks with a $20 bill and lets Mucklow keep the change. At one point, Mucklow asks him if he has a grudge against the airline. No, Cooper replies. I just have a grudge. Cooper instructs the flight attendants to tell the pilots of his demands. He wants $200,000 in cash, as well as four parachutes to be handed over once they land in Seattle. The pilots relay these demands to air traffic control, who alert the FBI. Before landing, the plane will circle above Puget Sound for two hours, giving the FBI agents time to collect the ransom. In their minds, Cooper is a dangerous criminal equipped with explosives. They're hoping for a peaceful resolution, but if the worst comes, they want to be ready. As the plane descends toward the Seattle airport, an army of FBI agents close in on the landing strip. Snipers train their weapons on the incoming plane, but Cooper is prepared for this. As soon as the plane touches down, he instructs flight attendant Tina Mucklow to close the window shades, taking away their chance of a clean shot. Cooper holds the passengers hostage until an airline official approaches the plane and hands over the four parachutes and money. Then, as promised, Cooper releases the passengers. Tina Mucklow breathes a sigh of relief, but as she joins the others leaving the plane, Cooper stops her. Sorry, miss, I need you here with me. Mucklow is terrified, but she has no choice but to do what the man says. Two hours after landing in Seattle, Cooper orders the two pilots to fly them all to Mexico City at a maximum height of 10,000 feet. Pilots' eyes instinctively flicker down to the briefcase Cooper holds by his side. A constant, unspoken threat. Like Mucklow, they do as they're told. Once the plane is airborne, Cooper asks Mucklow how to open the aft stairs, a retractable staircase in the belly of the plane. Mucklow glances at the three extra parachutes. She wonders, with a jolt of fear, if she's going to be forced to jump. But then Cooper tells her to join the pilots in the cockpit. He seems resolute, focused, his mind fixed on the task at hand. So Mucklow hurries into the cockpit and locks the door behind her. Ten minutes later, at around 8 p.m., Mucklow and the pilots feel the rush of freezing wind as Cooper opens the aft stairs. Then, when they stop to refuel in Reno, Nevada, they emerge from the cockpit to find that Cooper is gone. Immediately, FBI agents swarm the aircraft, but they find no trace of Cooper on board. He apparently parachuted from the plane with the money, leaping headfirst into a thunderstorm somewhere above the vast wilderness around Mount St. Helens in Washington. That was when he opened the aft stairs, and it'll be where the FBI begins their search. Thousands of military troops and law enforcement officers comb the woods and trees, but they don't find Cooper or whatever is left of him. Many agents believe that Cooper's dead. One of the lead agents on the case suggests that it's likely Cooper didn't even get his parachute open before he plunged to his death. But as the months turn into years without any discoveries, the authorities will be forced to consider the alternative that Cooper survived. It's February 10, 1980, nine years after D.B. Cooper hijacked the plane. An eight-year-old boy named Brian Ingram sits on a grassy bank alongside the Columbia River. Brian is on vacation with his family in Washington, and he's terribly bored. Behind him, his parents are packing up their picnic, arguing as usual. Despondently, Brian trails a stick in the muddy sand. But suddenly, the stick catches on something. It's a flash of green. Brian clears away the muck, and as eyes go wide, it's money. Three tightly wrapped bundles of $20 bills, almost $6,000 in total. The bills, though, are nearly disintegrated. Brian's family will report this to the authorities, who will cross-reference the serial numbers to prove that, indeed, Brian has just discovered some of D.B. Cooper's ransom money. The discovery will give new life to an investigation long gone stale. Over the past nine years, the search has been extensive and exhaustive, Cooper's drop zone could only be estimated based on the trajectory of his fall according to the plane's height and speed. Factoring in weather conditions, investigators focused on the large area of wilderness north of Portland and south of Lake Merwin, Washington. Submarines scoured rivers, lakes were dredged. The FBI went door to door with composite sketches of Cooper, but they didn't find a body anywhere. But looking for a body does not admit the other possibility that Cooper survived the jump, and that he went on to live a normal life with nearly $200,000 in tow. Over the decades, many will come forward, claiming that their husband or their uncle, their friend or co-worker, they are the real D.B. Cooper. The FBI will take some of these claims seriously. Most, however, they dismiss as fantasy. And then in 2016, the FBI officially closes its investigation into what is the only unsolved hijacking in American history. Cooper is the subject of countless stories, films, songs, TV shows, and urban legends. But the biggest legacy D.B. Cooper left behind is far more impactful. Cooper's skyjacking resulted in major changes in modern air travel, including the addition of metal detectors and the implementation of more stringent laws designed to prevent and punish any future hijackers. Next on History Daily, November 25th, 1487, Elizabeth of York is crowned Queen of England. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Sound design by Derek Behrens. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Joe Viner. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. It's just before dawn on August 16, 1812 at Fort Detroit in the U.S. Michigan Territory. In his room in the officer's quarters, General William Hull reads dispatches by candlelight. He hasn't slept for days, busy launching the first campaign in what will come to be known as the War of 1812. Tensions between the U.S. and Britain have been simmering ever since America defeated the British in the Revolutionary War of 1776. After earning its independence from Britain, America focused on establishing its new government. Britain focused on its decades-long conflict with France. But the open wounds of the revolution never fully healed. And in recent years, the tension between America and Britain has given way to open conflict on the high seas as U.S. and British ships began to skirmish. The growing conflict has finally compelled President Madison to ask Congress for a declaration of war, which Congress delivered in June, the first time in the young country's history. Not long after, President Madison sent General William Hull and over 2,000 troops into Canada, a poorly defended British territory, expecting a swift victory. But the British, with the help of their Canadian and Native American allies, mounted a surprising defense. Hull and his men were forced to retreat and hunkered down at the fort on the banks of the Detroit River, the border between the U.S. and Canada. The British don't pursue Hull across the river, Instead, they stay on the Canadian side, but fire cannons onto the town of Detroit, forcing civilians there to flee. Now, as Hull sits in the officers' quarters, he wonders how long it will be before the British cross the river and attack the fort. Then as dawn breaks, Hull hears the distant war cries of hundreds of Shawnee tribesmen advancing on the fort, backed by British and Canadian troops. British artillery sounds off from across the river, and before he has time to react, one of the shells crashes into the quarters not far from his room. As Hull steps out into the common area, he sees only dust and smoke. His ears ring with the sounds of officers screaming in pain. As the British fire on the fort relentlessly, the war cries get louder and closer. Hull knows his men likely outnumber the invading force outside, but he does not have the supplies or the ammunition to withstand a prolonged siege. So with little hesitation, Hull orders his men to raise the white flag. The incident, known as the Surrender of Detroit, all but puts an end to President Madison's Canadian campaign and puts America on its heels. After this embarrassing defeat at Fort Detroit, a veteran of the Revolutionary War and future president, Secretary of State James Monroe will turn the tide of the conflict, help bring an end to the war, and then finally deliver peace on February 17, 1815. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is February 17th. James Monroe Delivers the Treaty of Ghent. It's August 1812 in Washington, D.C., less than three years before the end of the war. Secretary of State James Monroe sits at his desk writing a letter to a friend in Congress. Monroe is frustrated by America's recent defeat at Fort Detroit and with General Hull, a man he calls weak, indecisive, and pusillanimous. But Monroe is frustrated by something else— his current job as Secretary of State. America is at war, and in Monroe's eyes, the real power in the President's Cabinet is the War Department. Monroe has his sights on becoming President one day, and he knows that defeating the British as the Secretary of War would certainly help his electoral prospects. But as it stands now, he fears he may never get a chance at the office. America is a new republic, and is ill-equipped to defeat the mighty British Empire. The young nation has no central bank, and no reserves to pay for troops or supplies. Many of President Madison's political enemies oppose Mr. Madison's war, an expensive conflict they feel is unwinnable. But Secretary of State Monroe disagrees, and he's eager to get out from behind his desk and into the fight. Today, as Monroe put pen to paper, he vents his wish that the president could dispose of me at this juncture in the military line. And not long after the surrender of Detroit, Monroe goes to Madison and asks for a military command, so that he might recover ground lost by General Hull. But President Madison denies him, insisting that he needs Monroe in the cabinet. Monroe is left frustrated, but there's little he can do. Madison is the president, and Monroe his loyal servant. But then a few months later, Madison's Secretary of War resigns, and President Madison names James Monroe the interim secretary. But for Monroe to become the official War Secretary, Monroe must first be confirmed by the United States Senate. Even though Madison's party, the Democratic-Republicans, hold the balance of power, many senators are sick and tired of the so-called Virginia dynasty, started by Thomas Jefferson in 1801 and carried forward through his successor, the current president and Virginia native, James Madison. In January of 1813, one Federalist politician gives voice to this frustration, saying it is a curious fact that for these 12 years past, the whole affairs of the country have been managed by two Virginians. Like Jefferson and Madison, Monroe, too, was also born in Virginia. And as a result of this Virginia fatigue, it soon becomes clear that the Senate will never confirm Monroe as War Secretary. So instead, Madison puts forward another option, a Pennsylvania statesman named John Armstrong. Monroe watches with frustration, as Armstrong is confirmed with little pushback. As a consolation, President Madison promises to make Monroe lieutenant general in command of the Northern Army. But the newly appointed war secretary, John Armstrong, has other plans in mind. Like Monroe, Armstrong has presidential ambitions. And in an attempt to deny Monroe any further glory, Armstrong convinces President Madison to leave his promise to Monroe unfulfilled. Monroe is stuck in the State Department, forced to watch John Armstrong lead the country in a time of war, and he fears down a path of ruin. It's August 9, 1814, on the Potomac River, just off the shores of Virginia, and the War of 1812 has been raging for over two years. An American diplomat named John Stuart Skinner stands on the deck of a British warship, lorded over by its commanding officer the British Rear Admiral George Cockburn. The papers call him the Great Bandit, but American sailors call him by another name, Attila the Hun. As Admiral Cockburn hands Skinner a dispatch intended for Secretary Monroe, the British officer makes gentlemanly small talk and tries to be polite. Peace negotiations between the U.S. and Britain are currently underway in the Belgian city of Ghent, where ministers from both countries have convened to try to agree to terms. But Cockburn is skeptical of these peace talks and thinks they won't amount to much more than just talk. Cockburn asks Skinner if he's heard from the American ministers in Ghent about what they think about the prospects for peace. Skinner replies that there has been no recent news from the U.S. ministers there. Hearing this, Cockburn flashes a devilish grin, replying, "'I believe, Mr. Skinner, that Mr. Madison will have to put on his armor and fight it out. I see nothing else left.' Cockburn was initially deployed into the Chesapeake Bay as part of a plan to draw U.S. troops away from the Canadian front to the north. But once there, Cockburn saw an even greater opportunity, a chance to put a swift end to the war by sacking the U.S. capital.
0: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia,
2: It's August of 1814, and the British fleet has just sailed into Chesapeake Bay and landed thousands of troops on U.S. soil, less than 50 miles southeast of the capital, Washington, D.C. In response, Secretary of State James Monroe sends an urgent message to Secretary of War John Armstrong, urging Armstrong to remove all essential documents and personnel from the capital. But Armstrong rejects Monroe's recommendation. He doesn't believe the British will attack the capital, but rather the city of Baltimore, located 40 miles northeast of Washington, D.C. Monroe is dumbfounded by Armstrong's thinking. To attack Baltimore, the British would have to march right past Washington. But Monroe's many attempts to change Armstrong's mind are in vain. Instead of defending the Capitol, Armstrong redeploys the bulk of the Capitol's defenses to Fort Washington, a dozen miles to the south, with the rest of his men sent to Bladensburg, Maryland, 10 miles to the east. But Monroe isn't taking any chances. He quickly puts his family on a coach and sends them to safety in Loudoun County, many miles to the west. He then procures a small fleet of boats and loads them up with State Department documents as well as his personal effects. Then he orders the captains to sail the boats north as far away from Washington as they can get. Lastly, Monroe takes up arms himself, rounds up a few dozen cavalrymen, and rides off into the night to gather intelligence on the enemy. He soon sends President Madison a dire message. 5,000 British troops are marching on Washington. Monroe urges the president to call up troops from Virginia to defend the capital. The president orders his Secretary of War, Armstrong, to comply with Monroe's recommendation, but Armstrong ignores the order. President Madison cannot tolerate the insubordination. He relieves Armstrong of his duty and names James Monroe first in command. Monroe gets right to work he quickly orders more troops to Bladensburg to shore up the minuscule force of 250 men. But it's too late. In a humiliating defeat, the American forces are routed and flee to the capital where Monroe forces them back into formation. But Monroe knows this meager force is no match for the thousands of British troops marching on the capital, so he orders what's left of his men to Baltimore, fearing the capital is lost. He urges President Madison to evacuate Washington of all valuable documents and public records but he himself stays in Washington until the last possible moment at around eight o'clock that night when the British begin to enter the Capitol. Monroe flees the city on horseback, finding sanctuary at a nearby house where the president's wife, Dolly Madison, has also taken refuge. From there, James Monroe and Mrs. Madison watch the sky glow orange and red as Washington begins to burn. It's August 28, 1814, just a few days after the British marched into Washington and set fire to the U.S. Capitol. Not long after, a storm blew through, bringing heavy winds that sent flames in all directions. The resulting inferno forced the British to abandon the Capitol, but only for the moment. So today, President Madison takes the opportunity to walk the streets and survey the damage. By his side is James Monroe, Secretary of State. Madison has also just appointed Monroe his War Secretary pro tem, making him the only official in U.S. history to serve two cabinet posts at the same time. Soon, the two men are recognized by civilians, who quickly surround the President and his War Secretary. One of them, a local doctor, steps forward, begging the President to dispatch a delegation of citizens to speak with the British commander and offer up their surrender. Hearing this... James Monroe flies into a rage, saying if any deputation of citizens moves toward the enemy, it will be repelled by the bayonet. He implores the citizens to help him defend the capital or die doing it. And inspired, the civilians rally to his side. Monroe repositions some 7,000 militiamen and places cannons at strategic defensive points around the city. He calls up militia from other states, lines the Potomac River with artillery, and sets up a system of gathering and transmitting information in and out of the city. Soon, Monroe's defense of Washington forces the British to abandon their hopes of taking back the capital. Victorious, Monroe pushes Congress to give him the resources to create a proper army. But Congress resists, so Monroe borrows millions of dollars on his own signature. He raises an army himself and uses it to beat back the British. Soon, the invading forces are forced to abandon Chesapeake Bay. But they then set their sights on New Orleans, a port city located at the mouth of the Mississippi River critical for shipping, trade, and the transportation of troops and supplies. Monroe knows whoever controls New Orleans will control the Mississippi River, and therefore the war. So in December of 1814, Monroe sends another future president to defend that city. In January 1815, James Monroe calls an emergency meeting of Congress at the Patent Office Building, the only public structure the British did not burn. There, Monroe delivers the news. General Andrew Jackson has prevailed at the Battle of New Orleans. The room erupts with cheers, as members from both political parties embrace in a rare moment of national unity. Monroe explains that the victory was total and absolute, thousands of British troops were wounded, captured, or killed, including the British commander. Any British survivors fled to their ships in the harbor. As Monroe and the members of Congress celebrate, many in the room wonder if this victory will finally bring an end to a long, costly war. But the war has already ended. Weeks ago, on Christmas Eve, United States and British ministers in Ghent had already signed a peace treaty that will bring an end to the conflict but it will take six weeks for the treaty to make its way across the Atlantic before reaching the desk of the president to be signed. It's February 16, 1815 in Washington, D.C., and President Madison has just sent the Treaty of Ghent to the Senate for a vote. Weeks ago, the treaty was signed by representatives from both countries and quickly approved by the British Parliament. But Madison knows the war is not officially over until the treaty is ratified by the United States Senate and delivered to British authorities. But Madison is worried that one of the stipulations in the treaty might offend the Senate. Article 11 states that the Treaty of Ghent must be ratified as is, without any changes, meaning the Senators will have to take it or leave it, and the terms of the treaty are far from the resounding victory many in the Senate are craving. The British will be required to return to the U.S.-captured territories near Lake Superior in Michigan and in Maine. But the U.S. will also be required to return to the British lands it captured in Canada. The stipulations of the treaty make one thing clear. The war was a stalemate. Luckily for Madison, the recent victory at the Battle of New Orleans helps the Senators swallow their pride. While the language of the treaty indicates a stalemate, the Americans know it was a true victory. And soon, Madison is relieved to learn that the Senate approved the treaty unanimously. But there is still one final step in the process. Madison must deliver the signed, approved treaty to the British. It's only fitting and proper that he leaves the job to his top diplomat, the same man who helped turn the tide of the war. The next day, on February 17, 1815, James Monroe performs his final act of the War of 1812. He meets with the British minister in Washington and presents him with a signed treaty, bringing a ceremonial end to the war. For the British, the American War of 1812, as they called it, was a minor conflict compared to the Great Napoleonic Wars being waged at the same time. But for America, it was significant and costly. Nearly 2,000 Americans were killed and 4,000 wounded. The war cost millions of dollars in materials, millions more in lost trade. After the war the U.S. economy collapsed, and the nation spiraled into bankruptcy. But the biggest victims of the war were the Native Americans, like the Shawnee tribe. After the war, the British largely abandoned their Native American allies, leaving them at the mercy of the American government. And in the coming years, the Native American tribes will be overwhelmed by waves of American settlers and government policies forcing Indian removal the bitter consequence of the nationalist pride many Americans feel after the victory in what they call the Second War of Independence. Secretary James Monroe will ride this wave of national fervor all the way to the White House, just as he hoped, and his landslide victory in the presidential election of 1816 ushers in what will come to be known as the Era of Good Feelings, a period of national unity in America that was already germinating when James Monroe delivered the signed Treaty of Ghent on February 17th, 1815. Next on History Daily, February 18, 1943, members of an anti-Nazi resistance movement called the White Rose are arrested by the Gestapo. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Music and sound design by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Stephen Walters. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noise.